0: Welcome to Inclusion Matters, a podcast about children's development from the Center for Inclusive Child Care. Welcome to Inclusion Matters, a podcast from the Center for Inclusive Childcare. I'm Priscilla Weigel, the Executive Director, and I'm here today with a dear friend and someone who has spent a lot of time with children, Dr. Chris Gendro, who has a practice, who has been practicing pediatric medicine for, is it 25 years, Chris? Eight. 28. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think you know what you're talking about then.
1: <laughs> yeah, you have some idea.
0: <laughs> Good. Well, we're here today to just really tap into your expertise because I think our listeners, oftentimes, we have when we think about children in group care settings, we know that sometimes our eyes are the first ones who really notice some things that might be showing up in their development that might be out of the norm because before that point, they're at home with their parents and, you know, there may not be something that's, that's really um, showing up. So when they get into childcare, one thing that we do at the center for inclusive childcare with our coaching work is we really help folks understand of those red flags in development and we encourage people the first step when they do have that is to really we're hoping that they have a good relationship with their pediatrician and that they're seeing their pediatrician regularly with their child and so we encourage them to head on over to that pediatrician make an appointment and share some of the concerns and so today we're going to talk with you about you know kind of what what you do on your end as a physician when a family comes to you and says, you know what? People in our lives are saying there's concerns. It could be relatives. It could be the child care provider. Could they be the preschool teacher? And so kind of how do you walk through those next steps?
1: Yeah, thank you Priscilla. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity because this is such a common thing to have come up where someone arrives in my office and says, Um, I think someone on your staff called them big behaviors. My my child care provider is saying that they're doing these, these, well, they don't use the word big behaviors, but they're, they're having trouble there. They're not, they're acting out, they're impulsive. There's things that their child care provider is seeing that are either difficult for the setting or they're concerned about something specifically in that child being, being a problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to me, I know that this is coming after those providers have spent hours with that child. I get 15, 10, 30 on a good day, minutes (laughs) with that child, but I really have to count on the people who are seeing that child over and over and over again to team up with me. (laughs) <laughs> to mm-hmm. tell what right. they're seeing um, someone again, someone in uh, in your um, in your field said to said, we know our role really well and we send families to the physicians to rule out things. I mm-hmm. totally agree. This is very much a team. Diagnosing feels like it comes from a medical world, but really a good diagnosis is only as good as the team that is sending that child in. To see me. Yeah. yeah. So that being said, uh, I think when a child and the family comes to me and says, are the people taking care of my children have these concerns? I have to step back and say, they've seen something that their trained eye has said is not quite right with that child. Is there something that I can find that maybe... Mm -hmm to that child or that family. Um, I think after 20-something years, the common thing that I've learned is that those children who who are expressing those behaviors are nearly always not comfortable in their bodies for some reason. Okay. Whether they're not comfortable because of things that are coming from the outside or coming from the inside. Okay. And... My role is, okay, what can I see from a medical standpoint that may be helpful or not?
0: that That's a beautiful way to look at it. And it's I, I think, you know, as I recall having been in the, this, you know this field also for a very quite a few years myself, I would wholeheartedly agree when I think about the children that we do encourage parents to dig deeper. On, you know, those, those behaviors, because we know that children's form of communication, young children is behavior. And so that's where we're going to see those um, questions. That's them telling us, I don't feel comfortable. And that's so great, whether it's on the outside or the inside. So, so when you, so that's what's happening in your mind as you are starting to kind of, you're kind of playing the detective at that point. Absolutely. Right. Right. And usually trying to say to the parent,
1: This is not about the fact that they're biting, hitting, whatever it is. This is about kind of what sets them off that five seconds before or what makes them feel like that's what they need to do or want to do. Um, And I'd say where I start is the big picture. In pediatrics, growth charts are everything. We always get okay. growth chart every time a patient comes in because you can learn so much by how they're growing. Um, so, you know, simple stuff, height, height and weight. Do they are those off? Do they have a thyroid problem that's making them either low energy or too much high energy or mm-hmm. um, you know, something along those lines? Uh, big, abrupt changes in weight in weight, especially Um, weight increases. I think about, are they doing a lot of emotional eating? Are they sitting around a lot Uh, uh, decreases? A biggie is, is the family dealing with food insecurity that's showing up as this. Uh, And, but the biggest, I think the biggest one when I look at growth is what's that child's appetite like? Because Mm. that usually leads to a discussion of digestion in all its forms of, you know, how are they eating? How? um, And it's interesting that, and honestly, I feel like I sometimes jump to digestion really soon when families come in because constipation is a huge problem. And when it's remarkable and parents don't. Oftentimes, don't believe me, but constipated kids—they don't eat well. They don't want to be active. They're crabby. They have pain. They just want to sit. And you clear that up, and all of a sudden, the child has energy, and they feel good, and they eat, and maybe they're more willing to listen to some of those boundaries that are being set.
0: Sure. (laughs) Oh, that's such—that's great information. Great information. Because they feel better. Um, Yeah. I think that. Right now, when we talk
1: about kids who are having developmental issues, a big thing that comes up is not just the constipation piece with digestion, but this question of does a healthy gut have to do with behavior and um, and brain health, even autism, ADHD, uh, is in some ways it kind of makes sense if your gut's not healthy, too much sugar processed foods, food dyes, people aren't going to feel well, kids aren't going to behave well. Um, uh, and there's some talk in different circles that that may lead to actually this thing called leaky gut where the body just has way more inflammation in it. Okay. Uh, there used to be some validity to it. I don't, um, not sure. Uh, I think that it's really, really interesting. At a minimum, what I do is to try to clean up kids' diets and frequently use some sort of supplementation, whether it's probiotics or certain vitamins, and that's really individual. and depends on how interested in that kind of approach a family is. Sure. Um, But if a child comes in who is having behavioral problems and they're having digestive problems, we kind of have to look at them together.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, partnering with the parents and helping them understand the connection. And then as you said, I mean, sometimes the challenge is that's one more thing for a family who is perhaps already overwhelmed right, to add right. to their you know list is trying to make sure that that child is getting all that they need. So the supplements might be a really helpful balance of trying to clean up the diet and also trying to make sure that some of those necessary pieces are in place. Right, and one time. So it isn't, like many things,
1: parents being given 12 things they need to do. And usually if they have a child who's acting out, they're probably pretty overwhelmed too because it's probably happening at home as well.
0: Right, (laughs) right, yes, yes. And that's that's why that partnership is so important. So digestion is really key. What else do you look at when you're thinking through kind of the kind of being that detective and trying to get to the bottom of things?
1: Yeah, the other biggie. Well, there's many biggies, but sleep. Mm. If they're sleeping, they're crabby, they're uh, out of sorts. Again, just not comfortable in their bodies because their bodies haven't had a chance to recover. Yeah. So it's. It's quantity, but, a, and parents sometimes get really stuck on quantity, that how many hours is my child supposed to sleep? And as a parent, I kind of chuckle because I think I couldn't have made my kids sleep unless I ducked <laughs> them to their beds. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right. so, so it's more, are they having quality sleep and are they, um, well, let's start there. I think the quality sleep piece, that yeah. medically, I nearly, I'm always looking at, do kids, our kids snoring. It's a lot of kids with big tonsils out there and they snore and just snoring fine. But if they choke in their sleep, that's sleep apnea. And people don't oh. think of children as sleep apnea, but the kids that, you know, specifically they snore louder, 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 choke, 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 wake, wake, wake. They aren't sleeping. Right. Right. And, um especially kids who are exhibiting signs of ADHD. Um, I really look at the quality of sleep and it's remarkable. Sometimes things like tonsils need to come out and then they sleep better and they act better. Wow. Wow. Appetite gets involved here because if iron levels are low, kids don't sleep well. Uh, we frequently check a blood test, not just to check for anemia, but something called ferritin. And if your ferritin levels are low, you don't sleep well. And sometimes, just by supplementing, doing some iron supplementation, kids will sleep better.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, this these days, uh, difficulty falling asleep because of screen time. Yes. Because of the yes. blue light that's coming off of their little devices um, and blue light, the blue light blockers help. But too much screen time decreases your natural melatonin. So then you have a hard time falling asleep. Right. So there are kids who need a little melatonin to fall asleep. And that's it's okay. It's, it, it's not, yeah. um, it, that's where you, I would want parents to be you know, talking to their pediatrician about how much they're using it. What dose to use? Some of those kinds of things. Sure, um, but some kids who just can't fall asleep—that can be—that can be a biggie.
0: Hmm. Mm. So, well, sleep is crit- I mean, when you think about an adult, sleep is critical as well. And so, when we think of some of those behaviors that would be showing up in a group care setting, you know, the the crying, the clingy, the being really aggressive, be having a short fuse, and knocking things over, um, not being able to play well, not being able to problem solve—all those things. I mean, all the things you've you've listed already, too. Just even the dig- digestive issues and lack of sleep. I mean, some kids, all of that may be happening at the same time, right? Well, I think you're right. Short fuse. I think that's
1: it. You know, if kids aren't sleeping well. You know, we have a short fuse, of course. Sure. And they have, and if they're already putting that in with lack difficulty with impulse control, it's not a good recipe. Yeah.
0: No, it is not a good recipe. Oh my! So sleep education is really important, and I'm sure that you spend a lot of time talking. As you said, it's most because I do think that there's a lot of information out there about the number of hours for age groups, and, and we often put that in our e-update as well, so people are updated. But that quality of sleep—that's a really good reminder for folks to be watching kids when they're sleeping. And, and childcare professionals can do that because they see kids during nap time right. and they so can help parents be informed more about how that child's sleeping during the day when parents are at work. Yeah. Yeah. It is a medical problem that leads to behavior problems. So, yeah. so, right. Yeah. Right. So what else comes to mind when you think about trying to decipher some of these behaviors that might cause some challenges?
1: Yeah, uh, I think about their medical history. I think about, uh, has this child had a lot of ear infections? So are they still dealing with a lot of ear infections? Because if kids aren't hearing well, and therefore their language is perhaps decreased, they're going to be more frustrated. And they're not, it's uh, it something, not that that's simple, but something along those lines can definitely make kids much more frustrated and make it more difficult uh, for them to really get their needs met. And so then they do it in ways that aren't particularly functional.
0: Right, right. And ear infections hurt. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Now we
1: didn't see a lot with COVID. It was very interesting. There was, yeah. um, I bet I didn't see an ear a kid child with an ear infection for over a year. Really? So that wow. was uh, once or twice a day kind of a thing before. Yeah.
0: So, so so why do you think that is? People, were kids weren't getting sick.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And even now, with the amount of masking being done, even in a childcare setting, even though things are getting spread around, uh, it's not. It's just not as much. They're not going from cold to cold. Like yeah.
0: Which um, most. I mean, that's really the life of a preschooler is cold to cold to cold. Well, and toddlers too. Yeah. Yeah. So they're never really getting to that. Oh, I feel good. Because by the time they're just on the uphill climb, they're getting knocked down by another one.
1: Something else. Right. Yeah. 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 I think another thing I really look at, and it's it's something that I think most of us have just learned about in the last handful of years, and it's not really medical, and I'm not even sure where it falls into, but the concept of Trauma. And where and how trauma sits in children's bodies, whether Mm -hmm. they experienced it or it was secondhand because they were around it. Um, It's it's one of those things that uh, sometimes makes my heart fall into my chest because I don't know. We don't always know what to do with it. We know that it leads to issues with kids, but frequently. My office is the only place people feel comfortable telling about it. Yeah. And so oftentimes I do need to ask about it and figure out what the next step is because there's no great answer for it. But it is it's part of what we've got to look at when kids are are acting out in some ways or those. I go back to that phrase, the big behaviors. Yes. Yeah, they, they. It's usually something big coming out.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. And we have a wonderful partnership, Chris, with the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health and their Infant and Early Childhood Division. We have actually a, a partnership contract right now, where and we just had a meeting with some great clinicians this last week for our coaches, where they talked about the, the stigma of even thinking about a child with a mental health concern. You know, and but we know that they're there and we know that if we can help support that child and that family, navigate kind of where those tools are available and get them the help that they need, there is, of course, a better outcome long term. But it is just a matter of asking the right questions and also having the comfort level to be able to share those really private experiences for families.
1: Yeah. Because they're not going to tell you the first time, no. but you might be able to just simply tell. Um, yeah. It's interesting, you bring up the stigma piece, and I realize there's uh, so often, let's, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, that was the answer. A child was misbehaving, and it was time for the child psychologist. And... It has become, especially in my practice, and some of it is that I practice in a slightly different way I've a little, do a little more integrative uh, work, but now I, and parents would be very reluctant to jump right into, to seeing a therapist, a a psychologist, but they will see an, an OT, they will see an occupational therapist. And both as a way of getting kids the help they need and getting assessments that we finally can use OTs because insurance used to not let us. That was oh, interesting. evidence-based. And now that to me has revolutionized what I can do with a child who's uncomfortable in their body for some reason that I can't. That isn't one of the things I just <laughs> talked about. Um, that's kind of inside their body, but the kids who are overwhelmed by stimulation, the kids sure. just—they just aren't comfortable with what's coming in. Um, the the use of OT has really changed how much how well
0: parents can understand what's going on with their child. That's great. And I know we do a lot of, we, we actually have a really great sensory brochure that we share with providers who are working with young children to just rule out, I mean, it lists a lot of the different kind of common behaviors you might see and how those relate to their sensory systems and the way that that, you know, incoming stimuli is affecting them. And that is something that I would agree in the last 10 to 15 years has become more and more of an accepted. Understood. However, still not something that a child would qualify for school services for special education services in the school. So the OT coming in and referring. I mean, I think trying to find those avenues in is so important. And that's the. And so I know that um, you know there's a lot of things that so the when you're looking at this, you know, I'm sure that there's lab work that needs to be done and all of those things as well. How long of a process does the would you say is is typical to kind of get to the bottom of things? Do you feel like with young children it's easier to find the answers because I don't know. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah,
1: it a lot a lot depends on how well I know the family and how well I know the child. Yeah. If they're brand new to me, it takes a little longer. But I think that it's it usually does not take more than a good physical exam, a good time, you are know, talking about a good amount of time talking about history. Sometimes some labs, um, there, it's, um, it really depends on what I see. It, it's not, it, it's like. It, some, for some, it's checking those iron levels, checking the thyroid, sometimes vitamin D in Minnesota, just because kids yes. don't get enough sunshine. And <laughs> right, <laughs> um, right. Have I ever found those things to be really helpful? You know, the occasional child with a thyroid disease, the occasional child who needs some extra iron. Um, But in terms of getting going down a path to being helpful. I think that's fairly quick. I think we can get kids. uh, I tend to get kids to someone like an OT or a psychologist very quickly before I send someone for a big evaluation. Okay. A multidisciplinary place that does, that where everybody kind of descends on the child, unless, unless it it seems indicated, but frequently it seems like you can start a little more slowly. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and then, but then ultimately, you know, a lot of these kids end up really benefiting from a big multidisciplinary look at, is this a learning issue? Is this a mental health issue? Um, Is this an OT issue? Is this, you know, what, what is going on here? Um, and luckily, in Minnesota, we have helped Me Grow Minnesota, right? Yes, which uh, it, it allows people to go the the therapists, the evaluators to go into the home where they can actually see the child in their element. Because what they're like in my office, I'm sure, is very, very different from what they're like at childcare, at preschool, at their in their home.
0: Yeah, yeah well and it is a wonderful resource and i know that um for our listeners out there we have a lot of information on our website we have some uh some podcasts also some tip sheets on help me grow and kind of the process of referring to that they've made it so easy in the last few years their website is amazing their resources are incredible so i would recommend our listeners checking that out chris i i would love to have you back um to talk a little bit more about some other issues that, and, and concerns and maybe topics that I think, um, are really part of the day-to-day in childcare. And one of those things is just helping people understand those developmental tasks and, and, and just a lot of different things. And so I'm hoping that you had enough fun today that you would love to come back as a guest another time where we can tackle some of those other issues. I would love to. That's great. And, uh, so as you can imagine from just listening to Dr. Jenro, she has wonderful uh, bedside manner and is really connected to her patients. And I think that that's part of the, the beauty of her helping families find the answers. And so I look forward to having you back again, Chris. Thank you all for listening. If you have any other needs, certainly reach out to us at info at inclusivechildcare.org and also check out our website for a lot of great resources. Thank you. And we'll look forward to having you back soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit us at inclusivechildcare.org.